Let's stand together as we come to the Bible. Revelation chapter 2, we're looking at the second letter to the church, this time in Smyrna. Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. Let's pray as we come now to God's Word. Father, by your Spirit, would you grant uh, us all ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, friends, Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Do please sit down, my friends. It was Sigmund Freud who popularized the notion that societies have certain taboos. In his uh, book, Totem and Taboo, Freud argued that in the same way that uh, primitive societies have literal totems and taboos, uh, contemporary societies have the same, though in less uh, physical and more subtle ways. These totems, that is a sort of religious centrifugal force for a society that garners attention and around which we gather, and such taboos, that is a sort of unmentionable grouping of fears, things that you do not talk about, a taboo. Together, he argued, they sort of forge a twin power that shapes culture and even influences the interactions of individuals within that culture, whether they know it or not. I suppose rather more simply, sometimes in the past the advice was given that if you want to get along in society, there are certain things you do not talk about in, in public. You know, It used to be said, don't talk about religion and politics or, or sex, perhaps, for that matter, in public. Taboos, then uh, he would have said, are facets, uh, they're parts of a sort of social structure which exert a kind of psychological power, and uh, the taboos are things that people are afraid to have to confront, cannot even mention, though they're there. Sort of elephant in the room, I guess. Mythical 1950s America and the Victorian 19th century were supposed to have never, ever broached one particular topic, that is sex, of course. 
But nowadays, in our society today, talking about sex is perhaps a little awkward in church, but it happens so much on TV or in magazines like Vogue or the equivalent blogs that it's almost boring. It certainly isn't a taboo topic. And uh, religion, well, that's very much back on the public agenda. And uh, politics, you can hardly turn on the radio without hearing some talk radio going on about whatever they feel about politics. No, we're an open society these days. We let it all hang out and we talk about everything. But is there nothing which exerts the hidden power of a taboo even today in our society? Yes, I think there is. And it's a matter which is right at the heart of the passage we're studying. That subject is the subject of death. Astonishingly enough, death is rarely mentioned today. It's not as if it's an uncommon experience after all. But something about the materialistic ideals of our society mean that the topic of death is at least near taboo-like. After all, if we somehow think that he who has the most toys at the end of his life wins, we don't want to be reminded that the same person will still die, however many toys he has. You will die, as will I, and we need to talk about it, face up to it, confront it. Well, this passage this morning is designed to help us do just that. See, what it's telling us is that true Christianity is faithful even to the point of death. You see, Smyrna, which along with uh, Philadelphia, shares the commendation of being the only church that received unmixed praise from the Lord Jesus in these seven letters to the seven churches of Asia. Uh, Smyrna is telling us what real religion must do. Real religion must provide an answer to death. It must. Now, we often talk about the mystery of suffering and maybe death, and there are unanswered questions to suffering, of course. But if the religion that you have this morning does not provide you with an answer to the greatest taboo of them all today, if it does not provide you an answer to death, then I ask you, what good is it? It certainly isn't real Christianity. I mean, the Bible is unashamed to tell us that if only for this life we have hope, then we are to be more pitied than all men. But this faith, this true Christianity that we espouse together here at College Church, it, it, it must be a, a faith that is faithful, as it puts it here, unto death or else it's meaningless, practically useless, pointless. Well, Smyrna shows us the way forward. You see, Smyrna, like uh, Ephesus, was a successful and large city. We looked at Ephesus last week, didn't we? And uh, Smyrna was just situated 30 miles north of Ephesus, and actually it's the only one of the seven cities which received these seven letters that is still in existence today. Uh, Modern-day Izmir 
is the second largest city in Asiatic Turkey. Ancient Smyrna probably numbered about 200,000 people or so. And it was famous for a number of things. It was famous for being a beautiful city. Its architecture was considered second to none. And it had a beautiful road which sort of wound up Mount Pagus from the harbor, reaching fully 500 feet above sea level, like a sort of golden necklace around the mountain. It was called the Road of Gold. Its coinage reflected a certain pride in its beauty. The coins of Smyrna read, Smyrna, first in Asia, great and beautiful. And actually it claimed to be the birthplace of Homer, the author of epic poetry. But Smyrna was also notorious for its suffering. After having been once founded, it was raised to the level of a gathering of villages for about 300 years until it was refounded about a century or so before Christ's birth, and it had suffered terribly. In fact, the very word Smyrna, by which it was known, popularly, maybe not accurately, but popularly, was thought to represent this myth of suffering for the city. It, it derived, you see, from the word myrrh which was the spice used to embalm and therefore associated with death and suffering. Beauty, suffering. And also Smyrna was known for its loyalty. You see, it was among among the first cities that sided with Rome before its emergence as the world superpower. It It was the first to build a temple to Dea Roma, and it, and it joined with Rome before its victory over the Carthaginian empire, and so it was known as a notably loyal and faithful city to Rome. It won over 11 other cities in Asia the privilege of building a temple to Tiberius. Beautiful, suffering, faithful, As we'll see, each of these relevant themes for the city of Smyrna is is skillfully picked out and addressed in the letter that it received. See, these letters, remember, as we began to see last week in the letter to Ephesus, are, are historical letters, historical documents written to real churches that really existed in Asia. And here we see Smyrna commended and exhorted that true Christianity is faithful even unto death. So it says, isn't it, verse 10, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Well, the letter to Smyrna describes this true Christianity in three ways. First, it says that Jesus rose from the dead. Second, it says that we who follow Jesus will rise from the dead. Third, it says, in the meantime, even though afflicted, we are rich. Well, last week we saw that religion without love is not Christianity. That's what Jesus thinks about religion as He wrote to the church at Ephesus. This week we see that true Christianity is faithful even unto death, even to the point of death. How's that? Well, first then, because Jesus rose from the dead. Look at verse 8. 
And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. And see, this is telling us that true Christianity has an answer to death and is able to be faithful even to the point of death because Jesus rose from the dead. He is the first and the last. That is, Jesus is the sovereign Lord of time and eternity who always was and is and will be. There's no more comforting doctrine for those suffering than the sovereignty of God. But for those facing death, well, not only is Jesus sovereign, He has also conquered death itself. He is the first and last who died and came to life. And it's this resurrection of Jesus that gives those of us who are Christians power over death, over death itself and the fear of death. Of course, that idea is taught in many other places in the New Testament, the second half of our Bibles. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 describes at length how because Jesus rose from the dead, we can be sure that we too will rise from the dead who believe in Him. You see, the trouble with death is you don't know what it's like until you get there and then it's too late. But for the Christian. Jesus has gone there first. He has conquered. And therefore, He shows us the way to the Father. Now, each of these letters actually picks out an aspect of the introductory description of Jesus in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. And here, the phrase, first and last, and died and uh, came to life, well, that had a special meaning to Smyrna, which was no doubt why that particular identification of the speaker, the Lord Jesus, was chosen Smyrna was a city that had been destroyed and yet lived. It had been sacked, raised to the ground, and yet now was once more a bustling metropolis. And so the verse may indicate this kind of reference for them at the time more precisely than we might notice uh, if, if we don't think about it carefully. Jesus is the one who died and lived. The city was a city that had died and, and lived. So they who put their faith in Jesus, would live too because Jesus rose from the dead. Well, if anyone tells you that Christianity then can survive without a belief in the real historical resurrection of Jesus from the dead, don't believe them. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead is essential to orthodox Christianity, to true Christianity. This is how we can know that, second, we who follow Jesus will rise from the dead. So look at verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So conquering, that is remaining full of faith in Jesus, even at death, results in eternal life. That's what that verse is saying. You see, the second death is a Hebrew term. Rabbis used it to describe the death of the wicked in the next life. And so the book of Revelation describes this second death in Revelation 20, verse 14, as the lake 
of fire. And in Revelation 21 verse 8, uh, this second death is described as the final lot of the cowardly, the faithless, and the detestable. But he who conquers by faith will escape what we more normally call this hell. Even if they are put to death for their faith here, they will not suffer the second death. The far more serious condemnation of fire and judgment that God will bring on the unfaithful. No, we who follow Jesus will rise from the dead. Now, will you notice that there is no view of purgatory here? There is no intermediate waiting room of semi-torture? No, if we are faithful, we will rise to new life. Of course, many other views of death are propounded, some humorous, many sad. I, I, I don't know what it says about me, but I have a rather lengthy collection of deathbed anecdotes of the great and famous, some less famous too. Some of them are funny and well-known. You may have heard that on his 75th birthday, Churchill was asked whether he was ready to meet his maker, and in typical Churchillian bombastic form replied, I'm ready to meet my maker, but whether my maker is ready for the ordeal of meeting me is another matter, you know. Some are poignant, even though they are funny, like Woody Allen, who's well-known for many quips, some uh, helpful, some less so, but uh, he said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work, I want to achieve it through not dying, which is very funny, but also very poignant. Um, And the movie that perhaps best encapsulated the sadness of death was a movie that I heard one pastor said was his favorite movie before... He watched it again, the movie Blade Runner, you know. Um, It's a a cult uh, sci-fi movie, and Blade Runner depicted a humanoid fighting for his life and ironically concerned to prolong a manufactured existence, you see, and sort of trying to plumb the depths of the meaning of being human. Towards the end of this, this movie, the sort of superhuman android begins to wax lyrical about all he has seen and done in his short life. He stands on top of a building and slowly, inevitably dying as the rain pours down his face. And he says, all these moments shall be lost like tears in rain. Death is a great sadness. It is a loss. But for the Christian, it need not end there. If we are faithful, we remain faithful to Jesus up until death. If the perseverance of the saints, as the old doctrine was called. That's what the phrase unto death means. It does not mean stopping at death, but including death, faithful unto death. If we remain such as we die, we will receive the crown of life. Of life, it's a a genitive grammatically. The, The genitive there meaning the crown that consists in life. The crown which is life will rise to new life. 
But what of now, you you may say, uh, Pastor, does true Christianity have nothing to say about now? Or was was any thought of now merely, as D.L. Moody put it, polishing brass on a sinking ship? Well, no, whatever whatever precisely he meant by that phrase, uh, it would be wrong to take from it that Christianity doesn't have something to say about now too. Of course it does. No, in fact, in the meantime, we are rich. Thirdly, then, look at verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. It's a remarkable thing for Jesus to have said. See, the poverty here mentioned is actually of an extreme kind. Uh, There is a uh, Greek word for poverty, which sort of just means the poverty of having to work with your hands for a living, for a living not, not being very well off, you know, sort of hand-to-mouth lifestyle. There's a word in Greek for that kind of poverty, but this word for poverty in Greek means destitution. It means having to beg to survive. It means having nothing. That's the word that's being used here. They were, they were poor in that sense. They had They were destitute. And so it's remarkable that Jesus, but you're rich. There have been a lot of different ideas as to what made them uh, so poor at this time. Uh, In my mind, most likely it must have been to do with the tribulation, which that word is joined in the same verse that made them so poor. In other words, they were being pressured and persecuted. At the time, being a Christian meant it was hard to find a job. And it may have at times also meant the confiscation of property, as it did, we know, to the Christians to whom the book of Hebrews is written. You can see that referred to in chapter 10, verse 34 of that book. Nonetheless, Jesus says, you're still rich. Why? Well, because of everything else, he says. They have the answer to life, meaning, and everything. Even death. See, in a city of beauty, suffering, and faithfulness, they were the true proponents of excellent and beautiful religion. True Christianity. And they had found the answer to death and suffering as they remained faithful. This, Jesus says, is true riches. What does money and houses and, you know, they didn't have cars, but chariots maybe, you know. What does all that mean if you cannot take it with you? You're already rich in heaven's eyes, he says. And they're reminded of it, reminded of it. That ultimate reality then is intended to inform their present attitude in the midst of their circumstances. Poor, yes, Jesus affirms that. He, He knows their situation. Poor, yes. Impoverished, no. No, rich, truly. All the other riches that people mean by that word are not really riches at all. They are the ones who are rich. Not the ones who are taking their property from them. They are rich. For they have the richness 
of the meaning of life, even through that great taboo death. True Christianity is faithful even to the point of death. For first, Jesus rose from the dead. Second, we who follow Jesus will rise from the dead. And third, that means that now we can realize that we are rich. Now, as we've uh, gone through this passage, uh, I hope we've seen how the message given to the church resonates with the actual situation in the city. But there's one more historical situation which, though unprovable, as I've thought about it and studied it, is it's so, it just made the hairs on the back of my neck stand on end. And so I want then, in conclusion, to paint the picture for you as at least I see it. Smyrna, beautiful, suffering, faithful, had a church in it planted most likely through the ministry of the Apostle Paul while he was in Ephesus. Acts tells us that the message of the gospel rang out throughout Asia, and certainly then it's reached Smyrna, 30 miles down the road. Smyrna was very Roman, loyal to Rome before other Asian cities. It was also very Jewish. There was probably a large population of Jews living there. At the time the letters to the seven churches were written, a new persecution against the Christians in the empire was about to be unleashed, probably what is known to historians as the Domitian persecution. And this persecution, as we saw last week, came about through the necessity of exacting homage to Rome and paying worship to Caesar, the emperor, as a mark of that loyalty, that homage to Rome. And the Christians would not do it. What's more, some, at least in the Jewish community, perhaps increasingly jealous of the Christians of converting numbers of Jews and God-fearers from their midst, became active conspirators. Hence, here, they are called not real Jews. John, himself a Jew, is making it clear this is not an ethnic issue. It's a moral issue not real Jews, that is, not Jews inwardly with a genuine relationship to God, but what he calls a synagogue of Satan. Satan is a Hebrew word meaning adversary. And its Greek equivalent in verse 10, devil, means accuser. So these then were the adversaries of the Christians, accusing them and causing them to be convicted, unknowingly the instruments of Satan. Smyrna was not only famous for its beauty, it was also famous for its elaborate games. And the games in ancient times were bloody shows of combat, wild animals unleashed to kill criminals and worse. And so the ten days, in verse 10, in my opinion, refers to these games. There's actually an inscription about these games which uses exactly that same peculiar phrasing to refer to the period of time of those games. And these games are when the Christians were most in danger, of course. The popular feeling of loyalty to Rome, for which the games were a a sort of archetype, was then at its height, and the bloodlust of the populace most likely to have its way. The death which pervades the letter to Smyrna then was a very real historical situation and also very relevant to us who will no doubt one day, even in the West, have to face again the trial of our faith for 10 days, as it were. 
before death for believing in one way to be saved, the exclusive salvation of Jesus Christ, and not bowing before the politically correct civic religion of Caesar in our day. It very decisively distinguishes between the true Christianity that's faithful even to the point of death and the false religion which gives up when afflictions and poverty come and certainly when death arrives. But real religion must have an answer to death and the faith of the Smyrnans did, as does that of all true Christians. One Smyrnan in particular from this time is famous for his faithfulness unto death. He, no doubt, was at least a member of the congregation at Smyrna when it received this letter, if not by then its pastor. He lived to a venerable old age, was respected far and wide throughout Asia, and after a trip to another church leader, returned to Smyrna to discover the games in full flood and his life then in danger. Well, he fled initially, as Jesus himself encouraged us to do, to the countryside. In the country, he received a vivid dream of his upcoming death, that he would be burnt at the stake. He fled again with his pursuers near at hand down a a river. His place was given away when the pursuers captured and tortured a boy to discover his whereabouts. God's will be done, the venerable old man is reported to have said. His guards arrived at his country hideaway. So so taken were they by the old man's godliness that they allowed him to finish saying his prayers. By all accounts, a rather lengthy series of prayers. They tried to persuade him to recant Christ there and then, but he would not and began to curse him and beat him. Eventually he arrived in the amphitheater at Smyrna where the games were held, an amphitheater that is part of the ruins today. The proconsul in charge of the games, moved by the old man's pious and humble appearance, begged him to change his mind. Swear allegiance to Caesar, he said. Recant Christ and cry away with the godless. The old man, looking at the screaming faces of the pagans filling the stadium, and cried, away with the godless? The proconsul, a humorless man, it seems, urged him again, revile Christ and I will set you free. The old man replied like this, eighty and six years have I served him and he never did me wrong. How then can I revile my King and Savior? The proconsul by now incensed said, Since you despise the wild beasts, I have fire too. Unless you recant, I'll have you burnt alive. The old man replied like this, You threaten me with fire that burns for an hour and after a little is extinguished, but you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why wait? Bring forth what you will. Furious now, the crowd demanded he be burnt alive, and themselves, it is said, frantically broke into bathhouses and stores collecting wood for the fire. So died Polycarp, martyr of Smyrna, 
faithful unto death. And the crown of life? Why, it too sparkles with local meaning. That, that crown is the word for wreath given to the victor at the games. Died? But not the second death. No, the crown of life, the victory, was polycarps. And others are like faithful even to the point of death. Perhaps you can see why then the church of Smyrna receives not even a word of criticism from the lips of Jesus. Tested in the affliction they overcame by faith. Contemporary Izmir still has Christians in it when the other churches and cities have all been wiped out. It's this test that tells. If your religion is no good for death, it's no good for life. True Christianity is faithful even to the point of death. Well, then, what do you believe? Are you willing this morning to face up to the taboo of our materialistic culture? Are you willing to face death and ask the unmentionable question what will happen when I die? Am I sure of my eternal salvation? Am I sure that I have the crown of life and not the lake of fire? Remember, there's no in-between. Self-righteous works will only secure us the lake of fire. It is faith that we need in order to conquer This was found on an American soldier shot in Italy during World War II. Look, God, I've never spoken to you, but now I want to say, how do you do? You see, God, they tell me you didn't exist like a fool. I believed all of this. Last night from a shell hole, I saw your sky. I figured right then they told me a lie. Had I taken the time to see the things you'd made, I'd have known they weren't calling a spade a spade. I wonder, God, if you'd shake my hand. Somehow I feel you'd understand. Funny, I had to come to this hellish place before I had time to see your face. Well, I guess there isn't much to say, but I'm sure glad, God, that I met you today. I guess the zero hour will soon be here, but I'm not afraid since I know you're near the signal. Well, God, I have to go. I like you lots. This I want you to know. But look now, this will be a terrible fight. Who knows? I may come to your house tonight. Though I wasn't friendly with you before, I wonder, God, if you'd wait at the door. Look, I'm crying. Me, shedding tears. I wish I'd known you these past many years. Well, I have to go now, God. Goodbye. Strange. Since I met you, I'm not afraid to die. Not afraid to die. 
One general, the Duke of Wellington, said, a person must be a coward or a liar who can boast of never having felt a fear of death. A coward or a liar or a Christian. Let's pray together. Well, let's pause in our mind to contemplate the taboo. We all know people who have died. In theory, we all know, unless Jesus returns, that we will first, that we will die. And yet, everything in the media, and sadly, so much in church life sometimes, is geared to tell us to grab everything now, to experience now. And sometimes in such a strong way that we, we forget to ask the most important question of them all. What will happen when I die? Would I receive the crown of life or the lake of fire? Father, in your word, we have a clear answer to how to receive the crown of life. Be faithful unto death. I pray then, Father, that you would give us that faith by your Spirit. Father, that as we listen to your word with ears to hear, you would help us to catch a vision of Jesus, the speaker of this letter, the first and the last who died and came to life. We would see him raised up and beautiful, that we would be reminded of the fact of the resurrection and that we would remain faithful Faithful to our commitments to you, Jesus. Faithful to our covenant with you. Faithful to your word. Faithful unto death. Father, some of us feel very poor this morning. We look around in the... Uh, driveways of other people's houses and they have nicer cars or we are really worried about our employment perhaps father help us to hear 
this proclamation of Jesus. Yes, okay, you are poor, but you are rich. Father, help us to use whatever the afflictions are that we might have as your tool to help us to see what life is really about. The richness of relationship to you, of love and faithfulness to those around us, of your people, the church. And so to come back to our covenant commitments. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.